In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with Jojo Mehta, Executive Director of Stop Ecocide International, about the positive news that the European Parliament is proposing to include ecocide in EU law, an important development in the course to have this vital legislation enshrined in international law. For those that are not familiar with ecocide, it has this simple definition. Ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. A law of ecocide was first proposed by the late Polly Higgins and it's fantastic to see the progress the organisation is making in fulfilling its objectives. In the next episode, I'm speaking with David Spratt, Research Director of the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration in Australia, about his new article on reclaiming the climate emergency. Thank you for listening. Jojo, it's great to see you again. Thank you very much for taking the time. Can you just begin by outlining what's just happened in relation to ecocide and EU law? Absolutely. So we've had a really historic moment this week in that the European Parliament has proposed that ecocide should be included in the revised European Environmental Crimes Directive. Now, this is a directive that is, has been under revision for the last sort of year or so. Um, a, a text was proposed by the European Commission and it's gone through several parliamentary committees and each one of those in turn has supported the inclusion of ecocide or ecocide level crimes. And it's finally went to the plenary of the parliament this week and on Wednesday that was approved. So that is now what the parliament is proposing should go into that directive. It's not the actual end point because there's still discussion to happen with the commission and with the council of ministers, but it's a massive vindication i mean it's a, it's it's a huge it's a huge distance to have traveled from you know 4 years ago when no one was talking about ecocide it's phenomenal everything you're saying is this is like the technical process of bringing this into into eu law how does this kind of thing translate into real environmental protections at the sort of individual state and community levels for for people who might be you know new to this yeah so i mean ecocide um sort of broadly speaking, speaking is really serious harm to nature so severe um, and widespread or long-term harm to nature and at the moment very few places actually legislate for that in the world so you know our kind of work if you like at Stop Ecoside International is to grow and that global conversation so that at national level at regional level and ultimately at the international level there is legislation that prohibits those worst harms and actually names them as crimes now it's going to take a little while for all of that to go through i mean even if the european directive if the final text does include as we think it is now quite likely to does include ecocide level crimes it will still be a certain amount of time before that is you know is enforceable and of course the member states will have to translate it into their own law etc but what it shows and this is it is much more important than people necessarily realise, is it shows a really strong direction of travel. You know, this is something that is now being accepted as, as something that has to be addressed. And it's not just the EU that's doing it. The Council of Europe, which is a separate body, the, the body that created the European Court of Human Rights, has also strongly endorsed all its member states, and there are 46 of those, to legislate for ecocide and to support it at the international level. So this is a really strong direction of travel. And what that does is it shores up the existing body of environmental protections, which and there are actually, you know, there are a lot of environmental laws out there. They're just badly enforced, badly monitored, badly followed. 
And what this will do is it will give the whole edifice a kind of foundational piece that has been missing. So, you know, it's one thing for a company to sort of say, oh, well, you know, I'll tick the boxes for my, you know, my ESG or my environmental impact assessment or my due diligence, you know, and they'll kind of sort of try and get away with what they can. But if you have a situation whereby you get that wrong, you're in breach of some regulation and you're also threatening severe harm to the environment, suddenly you're in the territory of criminal law, maybe even international criminal law. So what it does is it, it's a very sort of salutary reminder for everyone that's dealing with the aspects that they're supposed to be dealing with in terms of environmental protection to take that so much more seriously. And that is always, you know, that has, in a way, that's ultimately always been the cultural problem. We see nature as a bank of resources. We don't see it as something that we're part of and deeply entwined with. And that ultimately, we fully depend upon. I mean, you know, we've we've spent centuries developing this kind of, you know, mentality of alienation separation domination etc and it's coming back to bite us on the bite us on the backside right now because you know effectively we're having a reality check you know this this attitude that we've had you know it's not like there are some super villains who are always the bad guys this is a, a logical cultural conclusion of where we've been coming from for centuries so the real importance of recognizing as the european parliament has that we need to name the worst crimes really speaks to that acknowledgement of a cultural shift and that is profound okay and since the early days of ecos i always felt that there was a sort of inevitability because of the necessity and in your experience of being on this campaign for so long, what have been the milestones and where does this feature in that set of milestones? That's a really good way of highlighting progress, actually, to think about what those key moments are. So I think, I mean, the first one was in recent years, the Republic of Vanuatu calling for recognition of ecocide at the International Criminal Court. They were the first state to do that. So that was at the end of 2019. Really huge was the drawing up of a definition of a, of a consensus legal definition. So our foundation convened a, a panel of 12 lawyers from around the world who, who engaged, uh, that we, we engaged in a public consultation and then these lawyers engaged in a six-month drafting process. And in the summer of 2021, they came up with a legal definition of ecocide. And it's so short, I'll actually read it out so that your, your listeners can hear. Ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there's a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. Now, obviously, there is more detail, but that's the core of it. And it's based on established legal language, but it's also very clear and easy to understand. And that definition has gained huge traction. And since that came out, I mean, quite apart from the fact that before that date, I used to be able to actually read all the emails that came into my inbox. But since then, you know, we've now got a situation where over 25 countries, which are member states of the International Criminal Court, if you like, have got discussion of ecocide on public record at parliament or government level. And that's massive. That's a huge span of travel that's happened there. And so, you know, another key moment was Belgium saying that they were actually going to legislate, the government was actually going to legislate, and they're going through that procedure domestically now. So they'll be the first European country to treat it as an international crime and actually as a crime. France has included, but not really as a crime, more as a sort of misdemeanor, they watered it down. But Belgium have really sort of taken this on and their definition is based around the international definition. I think also this year, there's been a really interesting one in that Ukraine has also been talking about ecocide. Now, Zelensky talked about ecocide some months ago, but you know, at the time, we didn't consider it completely aligned with what we're trying to do with a standalone crime because they have some provision in their law and there is also some provision under war crimes. So it felt like that was the area it was falling into. But it's becoming clear that those provisions are not adequate or clear enough to actually use 
really well in a context of environmental damage in armed conflict. So that is something that, you know, that Ukraine's been really taking notice of and really pushed in the Council of Europe uh, decision earlier this year to, to back ecocide. So there's been these sort of, you know, there's been half a dozen kind of quite key moments where things have kind of jumped onto a new level. And I think probably the other thing I would say is that as of last year, this is a conversation that is being seriously heard at UN level. So we had a presence at COP28, we had a presence at COP15 in Montreal, so the climate and the biodiversity talks. And there's now the states that we have been kind of dealing with and, and communicating with are now starting to also communicate with each other to move this forward. So that is also another kind of shift up of a gear, if you like. Would you say that the EU as a as a block, if it takes this kind of action, is going to create a, a herd-like movement in as much as um, enforcing laws aligned with ecocide or an e- a law of ecocide, where individual member states might otherwise overlook some of the destructive activities? I'm trying to sort of see the step change, the, the acceleration of change and widespread action. If I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I feel like this is really what we're seeing is the establishment of a direction of travel. You know, I mean, you could say that, you know, we've been at the kind of spearhead of that. But, you know, it, it's almost like if, you know, when you sort of you drag a, a stick through water and you get all the swirls that come along behind, you know, it feels like that's what's happening. And people can't avoid those ripples. And I think the other thing is, as you said earlier, I mean, in a way, you know, it's necessary. On a certain level, it's it's very, very straightforward. It's a no-brainer. We know that if we're going to move forward into a culture and a civilization that operates safely and in harmony with the natural world, which clearly provides the resources we need, that's always where we're going to you know, get everything from, if you like, in terms of how we live. But it's how we do that with respect, how we do that with balance is going to require an outer parameter. And that's what this represents. I think what we're seeing is this kind of acknowledgement of that. And even quite conservative politicians have been saying to us for some time now, we know this is coming, we just don't know when. And and sort of subtext, we don't know if we're ready. Yeah, but, yeah, sure, sure, sure. but, But I think that brings us to perhaps another point that I think is important, which is that Often when people think about a new law coming in, they think about what's it going to be like when it's in place? You know, who might it prosecute? How will that work? And of course, all of that's important. But actually, what's really important as well is the space between now when we're hearing about it and when it comes into place, because that is the window for strategic change. That is the window for corporations, as they're already starting to do, kind of looking at that definition in effect, almost looking through it as a lens and kind of going, oh, well, if this is coming, what steers do we need to start making now? Um, And, you know, with investors, you know, what do we need to start looking at in terms of where we put our money? With insurers, what do we start looking at in terms of what we underwrite? All of that stuff comes into play before almost as if there's a kind of a compliance period even if we don't know the exact you know end date of that period but i think we can safely say that that will be within the next probably three to four years which is very fast for for international law it's sort of an alignment period but it it also seems to fill the gap that's rising in the public in terms of there's a gap between special interests and policymakers and what the public know now needs to be done and we seem to be closing that can you describe because time is absolutely critical now as as we're moving into a sort of more environmentally unstable period and can you describe the pressures that you felt as a campaigner pushing against sort of against the system to get this through it's a really 
interesting one that because I think that certainly, I mean, obviously, my I, I personally, Evan, as you know, I personally came to this from quite on the brand environmental campaigning and joined forces with a lawyer, Bolly Higgins, to generate the campaign, which has now become an international NGO with, with you know groups in fifty countries and so on. I mean, it's it's been a huge curve. This because it's accelerated very fast. What I would say is that at the more activist end, it's very obvious why there needs to be a sort of level of resistance and being against, because often you know, it's what something's coming at you. I mean, and, and this is very obvious in some other countries more than perhaps in the wealthy West. So if we think about, I don't know, you know the Amazon rainforest, for example, we think about the indigenous defenders there, they have to literally kind of, in a sense, stand and fight because the fight is being brought to them. But in terms of what we're doing, because ultimately it's governments that need to move this forward. This is actually not about a fight as such. It's actually more about, I mean, you could say persuasion or advocacy, but it's also about kind of actually just kind of having people have that little reality check where they actually kind of say, well, actually, we are all frustrated. We're all frustrated with the slow pace of action on climate and ecological crisis. And not just at grassroots, that's right through to you know the top level. It's like, this is not going fast enough. So actually, a lot of our work has been about actually showing that having the right framework really helps the direction of travel. It actually makes it easier to, you know, fulfill your climate obligations, to meet the Paris Agreement, to follow the global biodiversity framework, all of those things, if you've got the right framework in place. So the sort of honest truth with this is that although journalists ask us all the time, what are the obstacles, where's the resistance? Because this is such a kind of clear necessity I don't doubt that there's probably resistance behind closed doors, you know, from certain big companies or what have you. But the fact is, in the public domain, there's really very little because, I mean, if you've spent 20 years greenwashing and spending millions or billions on it, are you suddenly going to come out in public and say you don't want this? Because it's going to wreck all that investment. So effectively, what we do is always try to keep the conversation in the public space because that's where it's hardest to argue with. And I think we're already at the point now where governments, and, and we kind of predicted this about three years ago, but I think we're there now. We're at, the, we're, we're at the position where no government is going to want to be seen objecting to this. They may find it difficult, but they're not going to say something directly opposing it because actually they'll just look crap. Yeah. Um, it's like, no, we don't think it should be a crime to massively destroy the environment. I mean, who's going to come out in public and say that? <laughs> so you could say that it's always a bit of a bittersweet thing because, of course, the worse the situation gets, out there in the world, the more people support what we're doing. So we're sometimes not quite sure where to put ourselves that, you know, should we be celebrating or should we be kind of saying, look, this is awful, now you've got to listen. It's, it's, it's a tricky one. What sort of signal are we getting then? If the EU is moving in this direction and then the, there's activities around the world, we're obviously seeing an acceleration of the process. How, how do you perceive this signal in terms of now ramping up and moving I mean, for us, it feels very much like a kind of buckle your seatbelts, you know, because this, you know, this is now moving fast. I think what's been interesting in the light of what you asked is is the the fact that you know we we advocate most strongly, sort of specifically, if you like, like, for an international crime. In other words, at the top level, where we where we list ecocide alongside the other international crimes. Um, and, you know, there are various reasons for that. But what's really interesting is what we're seeing is a, a groundswell or sort of one academics described it as a sort of ecocide wave where n domestic government, you know, governments are looking at legislating domestically where regional, uh, you know, government like the EU are looking at it. You know, so, and what we're finding is that those things seem to far from detracting from each other, they actually appear to be reinforcing each other. 
So, you know, the fact that Belgium is legislating has had, you know, UN missions in New York sort of sit up and go, oh, gosh, well, they're doing it. Oh, well, let's look at what's happening internationally. And at the same time, the fact that there is an international momentum is also encouraging individual countries and, and regions to consider it. So it's, it's very much a kind of mutually reinforcing situation. So do you think there's an element of this of knowledge sharing? You just said, you know, Belgium's taking it very serious. Other people are suddenly like, well, how are they doing it? And then they've got to get into that detail yes. and try and understand it and that that kind of Absolutely. That kind of drilling down. I have to say again, I mean, the definition, which is beautifully so short, you can put on the back of a business card. I mean, I love this when you're dealing with politicians and they don't want to read a 20 page document, you know, you just (laughs) in this card. Um, But the definition has made a fantastic difference because actually those places that are looking at legislating for it are using it, are basing it on this. They're using this as a starting point. And what that shows, um, well, the sort of breadth of legitimacy that it's had, because obviously it had a whole range of lawyers from around the world. So rather than any previous working definitions, which were just, you know, one lawyer saying, well, I think it should look like this, you actually had a kind of consensus, which had had a consultation behind it and and, and a whole range of, of viewpoints. So that's been brilliant. And I think that's really helped because it's given people a handle on what could this mean. But also in the definition itself, it's actually beautifully crafted because it has these two thresholds one is the severity of the harm because of course you know this is not a silver bullet to kind of catch every environmental misdemeanor you know it's looking at the most severe harm so you've got a threshold there that's quite high but the second threshold that is the acts that constitute ecocide have to be either unlawful in other words they have to be in breach of something that's already there or they have to be wanton as, as in create disproportionate harm and the beauty of that is it allows it to kind of mesh in with existing law. It's not like someone's kind of riding in on a white charger saying, I don't know what you've been doing up till now, but, you know, this is the rescue. It's it's not like that. And actually, diplomatically, that would have been a disaster. Whereas what this acknowledges is that there are different bodies of law in different jurisdictions, and this will support them. And as those regulatory frameworks improve, and of course, there are academics, experts, activists, all working on particular improvements in particular areas, all of that will be supported by this. And conversely, the more that that regulation improves, the more powerful this definition gets. So it's it's effectively, it's got a kind of dynamism and a sort of future-proof aspect in it. And I think the other thing that's really important is that what it doesn't do is point at any particular industry or particular activity. And that's crucial because firstly, obviously, as soon as you do that, you make very serious enemies. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, if you're not on that list, you may think that what you're doing is fine. Whereas actually what we're trying to catch is the level of harm, the seriousness of the threat of what you're doing. And that, I think, is something that can then move with the times, because, you know, we don't know between now and five years time what crazy ecocidal nonsense somebody is going to dream up. But at least if there's a parameter that says whatever you do, it must not go beyond a certain level of destruction, then at least we can kind of feel, well, hopefully safe. (laughs) Yeah, it relates to our intrinsic relationship with our environment. And and it kind of also seems to help frame the kind of world we want to live in, as opposed to what we've yeah. dealt ourselves in a way. <laughs> exactly. I think that's beautifully put. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Well, look, thank you very much. It's, it's really exciting to speak to you at this milestone. And I really look forward to reading and hearing more about it. Absolutely. So do we. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Nick.